Our Father, you tell us in Scripture that you are the God, the one and only true God. You are the God who never sleeps, who never slumbers. You never get fatigued. You never get weary. You are constant. You are steadfast. Your eye is always upon us. But we, on the other hand, we're creatures. And we have capacities, and they are limited. We uh, have been given breath from you, and we're dependent on you for breath. We've been given energy and health, and we're dependent upon you for those things. But it's not unlimited. We can only go so long. There's only so much gas in the tank. And then we get tired. And try as hard as we might, we, uh, we nod off. We have to sleep. We have to rest. You never need to rest. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you give to your beloved, even in their sleep. Even when we're sleeping, <clears throat> even when we are <clears throat> even when we are unaware of what is going on around us, your eye is upon us and you are protecting and you are providing. We are all men here tonight who are in need, different kinds of needs, but we are needy because we have limitations and we have capacities and we get overtaxed and we get overburdened and we get overwhelmed and we get overanxious. And you tell us to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. So tonight, we ask for your help. We ask that uh, you would help those who are anxious. That you would help those who are worried deeply. We ask that you would help those who are physically weak. We ask that you would help those who are becoming increasingly mentally weak and they sense it and it scares them and they don't want it so they call to you and we ask that you would help them we pray for those who are disappointed today we pray for those who are deeply discouraged in this room we pray for those who are frustrated and angry. You know who they are and you understand why they feel the way they do. We pray for those who have had great news and great success. We thank you for those times 
but we would also ask that you would help us to be careful to handle those blessings wisely. Wherever we are in life and whatever our lot, we need you. Whether it's great prosperity or it's great adversity, we need you. So tonight, we ask for your help. We ask for teachable hearts. We ask for your encouragement. We ask you to help us to not be afraid of the future because you've given us a future and a hope. All of these things we ask in your name, which is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. So tonight, I've got a premise. I've got a question. I've got a, uh, a task. That's my outline. That's what I've got. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I've got a premise, I've got a question, and I've got a task. I'm always asked for a title. Here's a title. We'll see how this works. Because we have been working our way through the Ten Commandments. And for the last several weeks, we've been on the Seventh Commandment. They're listed in Exodus 20, and they're listed in, again in Deuteronomy 5. We've been taking our time with these commandments. The Seventh Commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. As we have said each week, God put that there as a protection of marriage because marriage and family are the fundamental building block of all human culture and society. God wants that protected. Uh, he invented it, he created it, he owns it, he has the copyright, he has the trademark. It's his. It's sacred marriage. It's significant. He put it in place for the good of all people and for their protection and for their security. But it's under attack. And the commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Why? Because obviously that is a threat to marriage. It's a threat to trust. It's a threat to stability and to well-being. All that in mind to come up with a title. And by the way, it's just not marriage. When you have marriage, then you're going to have children in most cases. That's how the race, that's how the generations continue. All of this is under attack. All of it. God put all of this in place at creation. So for tonight, if I were to come up with a title, as we continue looking at this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, which is a protection of marriage, as we keep looking at it from different angles because it encompasses all kinds of different things. Here's what I've got for a title tonight. I've got marriage, babies, and gender 
in evil times. Marriage, babies, and gender in evil times. I said that I had a premise, and that would be number one on the outline. And what is the premise tonight? The premise is this. And, and it's really kind of fascinating because we've been in this study since September on the Ten Commandments. It, it seems like, and I've said this before, but it seems like on a daily basis, we're watching the erosion. This country was built on these commandments. It was built on scriptural principles. All you have to do is go to Washington, D.C. and see scripture everywhere that is chiseled in stone and marble. It's everywhere. The Ten Commandments are in the Supreme Court. Here's the premise. We are witnessing on a daily basis the unraveling of a nation and a civilization that is abandoning, abandoning the moral law as given in the Ten Commandments. A little cumbersome, let me say it again. We are witnessing on a daily basis, right now, the unraveling of a nation and a civilization, Christian civilization, Western civilization, that is abandoning the moral law as given in the Ten Commandments by God. The Ten Commandments is the basis. I've shown you before the book that Wayne Grudem has done, uh, the contemporary theologian on, uh, on, on ethics. Wayne's book, This Thick, is all based on the Ten Commandments because all of Christian civilization, i.e. Western civilization, has been based on the Ten Commandments. That is the foundation. So that's our premise. We're watching this before our very eyes. Uh, every day, it seems like another layer is peeled back in an attempt, and, and don't mistake what, what we're watching culturally. Don't mistake what ultimately this is. This is rebellion against the creation ordinances of Almighty God. That's exactly what it is. God put things in place at creation, and this is an ongoing rebellion that is picking up momentum and picking up steam. <clears throat> so that's our premise. Now, number two, secondly, I've got a question. And the question would be, how does a godly man live in godless times? That's the question. How does a godly man live in godless times? Some times are more evil than others. We had something, oh, several decades ago that was called the moral majority. In, in actuality, the majority has probably never been moral. Because as we saw last week, there are two ways to live. There are two approaches to life. There is the man who seeks the wisdom of God and who seeks the counsel of God, Psalm 1. And also in that Psalm, there is the man who does not want the counsel and wisdom of God, but he wants to be his own God and do things his own way. He has no interest in what God has to say. Although God says to us, God tells us in Deuteronomy 4 that he is giving the Ten Commandments 
so that it might go well with us and for our children who come after. The best way to live is, a, is according to what God says. That is absolutely the best way to live your life, even though there are restrictions. But there are restrictions on everything. But you see, we live in a time and a culture where generally speaking, our culture wants no restrictions on anything, especially sexual anarchy. That is the driving force in our culture. Interesting, isn't it, that God created sex? But God put uh, boundaries on sex. A, a, a river can be a beautiful, wonderful, productive thing when it flows within its banks. When a river gets outside of its banks, it can be horribly destructive. Same thing with sex. We want to run within the banks of God's commandments. That's the blessed life. That's the life of wisdom. That's the life of well-being. That's the life of peace. You get outside of that, and you get yourself in major league trouble. So how does a godly man live in godless times? Let's go to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is brief, but it is to the point it begins with a question about who it is that may live and abide with God. It's a description of a citizen of uh, Jerusalem or Zion, one who is in covenant with God and his commandments and trust in God alone. Psalm 15, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your tent? Who, I have a question for you. Who, who dwells in your tent? You don't have a tent. Who dwells in your house? Who dwells in your condominium? Who dwells in your townhouse? Who dwells in your mobile home or in your RV? Family. Um, God has family. God has those that belong to him through his goodness and his kindness and through the fact that he sent his son to die in our place for our sins. Now, in the Old Testament, they looked ahead to the coming of Christ. They looked ahead to the cross. They looked ahead to Christ coming, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying in our place, taking our sins upon us, paying for our sins in full. He died, he buried, he rose again on the third day. They looked ahead to the coming Messiah. We look back to what he did. But the cross the work of Christ is it's central in all of history. We even date our calendars still with his birth and his life. We've got B.C. and we've got A.D. And they keep trying to change it. It's sort of like they keep trying to bring the metric system in here, but it doesn't quite work. I don't expect them to quit anytime soon. 
But history is his story. He always has his people. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may live with you, who may dwell on your holy hill, who lives on your property, family. And now he's going to describe those who are in the family and there has been a change within them. 1 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Now, here is a description of the character and the behavior. And may I also say this. This is a description of the duty of a man who walks with the Lord. As those who are called by Christ, we are to follow him. We are to be conformed to his image. And we have responsibilities because we are in his family. And we have been given, um, indeed, tasks. And now what he's going to do, he is going to give a description of the kind of man that the Lord is working in his life and the kind of man and the kind of behavior and the kind of attitudes and the kind of responsibilities that are a part of this man and his entire existence. He begins with, in verse 2, he who walks with integrity. In other words, the pieces, what he says matches up with what he does. We want to grow in our integrity. We want to grow in grace. We want our word to become our bond. Let whom who lies lie no more, lie, lie no more, but speak the truth. Let him who steals steal no longer, but work with his hands. You see that in Ephesians and Colossians. So there is a change. There's a transformation. Now, does it take place immediately overnight in a microwave? No. It is a process but we are growing in Christ. We should be growing in these things. We should, so here's a description. He's a man who walks in integrity and he works righteousness and he speaks truth in his heart. The heart is central. Guard your heart for from it flows the wellsprings of life, Proverbs says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. The heart is critical. And when we come to know the Lord, he changes our hearts, and the change in the heart includes the mind. The change begins to take place in our hearts and in our minds. Romans 12. Therefore, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. We used to be conformed to the world because we were of the world, but when Christ comes into our lives, we're transformed. Now, that's an ongoing process. How do we continue to be transformed? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is why we study Scripture. This is why we meditate on Scripture. The more I get Scripture in me, the more Scripture comes out of me in my behavior and in my life. It's to be lived out. It's to be demonstrated. It's to be apparent. 
There's to be fruitfulness. May I say there is a duty to walk in integrity. Uh, may I say that there is a duty to work righteousness out in your life as opposed to evil. You want to do the right thing. Spiritual leadership is doing the next right thing. Not the next wrong thing. That's how we used to live. It's doing the next right thing. And it's speaking truth in the heart. And then he goes on and he gives other descriptions. He doesn't slander with his tongue. Nor does evil to his neighbor. This is what we're aspiring to. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This gets interesting in four, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. A, repro a reprobate is a vile person who is against God and against God's truth and against God's law and against God's grace and against God's mercy. They're basically against God. And instead of listening to them and being influenced by them, you don't look up to them, you actually look down on them because of, in a sense, because of their rejection of the wisdom of God. It's what you find in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits, uh, stands in the seat in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Those who would scoff at the Lord God and at his word and at his truth. They are the ones that used to influence us, but they influence us no more. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. You see, that's, that's, your, that's your standard. Oftentimes we get, uh, we have elections come up and the question is, well, you know, who should I vote for? I, I think there's a, uh, that's a good verse. The, the one, and you, you may have two unbelievers running, but the one who has the greatest bent towards fearing God, the one has, who has the greatest bent to the things of God as revealed in scripture, even though they may not know the Lord, there you go. Um, next line. He swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. That's integrity. If you give your word on something and then something changes, uh, you, go you, you go ahead and take the hit and you keep your word. You swear to your own hurt. Boy, that's, that's something. That's called integrity. Uh, Verse 5 says he doesn't put out his money at interest. Do we have any bankers in the room? That's not for bankers. But in the Old Testament, Jews could not charge fellow Jews interest because it was a family issue. Next line. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. A lot of bribes going on. All over. A lot of bribes, a lot of bribes. A lot of bribes against the innocent. Right now in our culture. 
the most obvious innocent are babies in the womb. And there's a lot of money being exchanged to take bribes against the innocent who cannot defend themselves. Godly men defend the innocent. Oh, you say, well, I mean, see, that would go back up to verse 2. He walks with integrity and works righteousness. You don't work unrighteousness, you work righteousness. So you don't do bribes and you don't do evil. That's not how you live your life with God's help. And when you fall back into that, you confess your sin and you come clean and you deal with it. And God's blessing and favor is back on you. Now, see, this is the standard. Um, I, I, I got to move quickly here. Let's go to the third point. See, Psalm 15, how does a godly man live in godless times? And then thirdly, what is his task? Well, Ephesians 5 picks this up. It picks up the, the, the question, how does a godly man live in godless times? Let's go to Ephesians 5. See what the New Testament has to say about this. This would uh, have great application to us. Verse 15 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Before we knew Christ, we were unwise, we were foolish. We were all about ourselves. We come to the Lord. Now we begin the process of, because we're in Christ and we've been born again and we have new hearts, we're in the process of growing up and becoming mature and being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Once again, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a microwave thing. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's slow growth. But, but there should be growth. And if you're not growing, God will pay attention. Usually when you're not growing, when we're not growing, it's because we're not teachable. So God will get involved personally and, and discipline us as a good father disciplines a child who is not growing in maturity. Uh, and that usually involves some discipline, Hebrews 12. If you've never been disciplined by God, you're probably not a child of God. For every son that he receives is disciplined by the Lord. And to those who have been trained by it. You see, that's the whole point of discipline. It's to be trained. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So we're in a process. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ah, I skipped a verse. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. This is why we study the scriptures. This is why we walk with wise men. He who walks with wise men will be wise. So who, how blessed is the man who stands not in the path of sinners, but how blessed is the man who stands in the path and stands in the council of other godly men. He who walks with wise men will be wise. He goes on and says in 16, making the most of your time or redeeming your time. You've got an X amount of time on the earth. Making the most of your time, watch this, because the days are evil. Now, 
we're watching the days get increasingly evil. This is where we are and this is where we're living. It can get overwhelming at times, it can get discouraging, but God has appointed us to be alive in these times. So we should not be overwhelmed and we should not be discouraged. It was his plan that we be on the earth at this moment in history. And he sustains us and he gives us what we need and he is our shepherd and he navigates us through these times. But we have a great sense of how much we need him. And that ultimately he is really the only solution to what is going on around us. Verse 17, so then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do I understand what the will of the Lord is? By being in the scripture. So this is why we're here. This is why we have our Bibles. This is why we open them up. This is why we get resistance every time you go to open your Bible from the enemy. Every time you go to read your Bible in the morning, you get resistance. He doesn't want you in it because he doesn't want you mature and he doesn't want you to grow. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I understand the will of the Lord by reading this book. Let's go to Romans 1. <clears throat> Romans 1 explains to us, I, I was I caught a portion of a Christian radio program earlier this week. I only caught five minutes but they were interviewing a, a guest, a guy had written a number of books, he's pretty sharp, and the host said, and they were talking about all these issues going around us right now in our country. And they had just been discussing it, three or four of them, and then this guest called in, and he said, so why are we dealing with this? Explain to us what's going on. The guy immediately went to Romans 1. Here's the explanation that we're seeing all of this that we're, that we're watching unfold before our eyes on a daily basis. This lunacy. So we go to Romans chapter one. And we've gone to Romans one many times in this Bible study, but it does give an explanation of where we are 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, now see guys, these are fundamentals, but we gotta get them down. All men know that God exists. Every person on the earth knows that God exists, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now he goes on and explains. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. God has written the truth that he exists on the heart of every human individual. It's in them. They know he's there. That's the first way you know that God is there. There's a second way, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. We see it more clearly now than it's ever been seen before. Because we got these uh, smart TV, 4GH something that have pixels that are so clear it'll knock you on your tail. 
right? It's amazing. And every time I walk into Costco, they got about 27 screens. And a lot of times, it's just showing mountain ranges. Or it's showing the depths of the sea and it's in unbelievable clarity or it's showing sunsets. Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their line goes out through all the earth. Their voice is not heard, but it's clearly seen. What do we do with that? We talk about Mother Nature. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For since creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that, watch this, they are without excuse. There's no excuse to be in rebellion to God. You know that he's there. You know it. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's the story of the American university system. And that's the story of universities around the world. Professing to be wise, they became as fools. There are more fools per square inch on a university campus than anywhere else on the face of the earth. And I'm not talking about the students. I'm talking about the tenured faculty. The students are right behind them. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Why? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We worship the creation. We worship animals. Now, some literally worship animals. But you can worship animals without bowing down to animals. Therefore, God, and because of this, and because of this, watch uh, verse 24. And note the word therefore. You see a therefore, he's summing something up. Therefore, because they responded to the truth of God this way, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this, everything we see going on around us is rebellion and anarchy towards the Lord God Almighty. It's, it's not, don't make the mistake of thinking, no, this is just political stuff. No, it isn't. It is rebellion against the creation ordinances of Almighty God and his right to rule and reign over all things. You see, you don't get this on Fox News, do you? But it's in the scriptures. You still there? There's more. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
And just as God did not see fit to, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind or a reprobate mind to do the things which are not proper. But our culture says, oh, these things are proper. They're to be accepted. They're to be approved of. God says they're not proper. They're not natural. They're not right. They're sin. By the way, when it says God gave them over to a depraved mind, the basic meaning of that word is of not standing the test. It was used of metals. It was used of... um, metals that were put in the fire by refiners and the purity level did not meet the standards. You see, a, um, when God gives you over to a depraved mind, it's because your thinking does not match the standard. Uh, your, your mind is not interested in truth because you've rejected truth. Why would God give someone over to a depraved mind? Because they have begun the process on their own of rejecting truth and denying truth and the ideas of sitting on a box and keeping it down, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So if you want to suppress the truth and suppress the truth and suppress the truth, God will give you what you want, what you want. The worst thing that God can ever do is to give you what you want. That's the worst thing. You want to deny him, and you want to deny him, and you want to deny him, and he just lets you do it? You don't ever want to be there. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, not uh, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Okay. You see, the natural man does not accept the things of God. What we see going on in our culture is a lot of natural men in rebellion to Almighty God, and their whole existence is based on suppressing the truth. Therefore, their whole existence is based on lies. That's their whole existence. So what is the task of the godly man? When you think back to Psalm 15... He walks with integrity. He works righteousness. He speaks truth in his heart. One of the things that we do when we work righteousness is that we expose the lies. We expose the lies by teaching Scripture, by living out Scripture. In our homes, where we work, we all have a sphere of influence. We, we have a, a literal geographical sphere where we travel and spend most of our time. It's filled with people. It's filled with um, where we work. It's filled with family. It's filled with friends, church, all kinds of stuff. Sports activities, uh, that's your sphere. 
And in your sphere, as a man of God, you don't live a lie, you live in the truth. You don't walk as unwise, you walk as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And when a man is following Christ, there is an aroma of Christ that comes out, Paul said in 2 Corinthians. To some, it's an aroma of death. To some, it's an aroma of life. You can spot a real Christian. You can spot him. Just by how he lives his life. So, we are living in a culture of lies that's falling apart because of lives, lies, L-I-E-S. What are these lies? All right, let's pull this in now. What are these lies? First of all, they're being spread by leaders who are in rebellion to Almighty God. Turn with me to Job 12. Let's look at the leaders and then who spread the lies, and then we'll look at the individual lies. So we want to go to Job 12. You can find Psalms. Go left, and you'll run into Job. I, uh, the, the first time Job 12 really stood out to me and came off the page, I, I'm, I'm going to say must have been, oh, seven, eight years ago, approximately. I, uh, and I've told this before, I, was, uh, I made the mistake. I, I watched the full hour of news on Fox News. And I got angry. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I, I can't do that. But I watched a full hour. My next mistake was watching the next program for a full hour. And I mean, my blood pressure. I mean, my, I, I mean, it's just, my countenance changed, I think would be the biblical term. I mean, I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm yelling at the TV. I'm, I know that's hard for you to believe. But I mean, I was just angry because of the lies, the liars, the liars. And you know, when lies are told, people's lives get destroyed. People's lives get devastated. And then I watched a little more of the same channel. And I mean, I was so angry. I went to bed. I, I, I couldn't sleep. I was, I was just angry. I was so incensed. Finally dropped off to sleep, got up the next morning, got my coffee, got my Bible. I have my Bible reading calendar that I read in the morning. It gets me through the scriptures. If I read four chapters, it gets me through the scriptures, the whole Bible in a year. It's what I do. But I had trouble focusing because I was still angry. I was upset. I was just as angry when I woke up as when I went to bed because of the injustice, because of the lies, because of the half-truths. And whatever that date was, one of the four readings was Job 12. So I'm in Job 12, and I read about half of Job 12, and I thought, I don't, I don't remember anything I just read. 
because I was, I, I just had to calm down. I had to, I, I just had to get my wits about me. And so I prayed. I, I read this two or three times and none, none of it was penetrating. And I had to just stop and say, Lord, uh, I need your help here. Because uh, you know why I watched all that stuff last night. But I need to hear from you. Would you calm me down and help me to absorb this, please? So I backed up and I started reading it slowly. Um, Job had some friends that were accusing him and saying the reason you're going through these calamities is because you're not a righteous man at all. And you don't need friends like that because he really was a man who was after, who was following the Lord. Um, he says in verse 3, I have intelligence as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. They're just working him over. Uh, he gets down to uh, verse 9, and I'm starting to pick up steam here. Who among you does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? I've got calamity. I've got adversity. I've got hardship. But God is sovereign, and he's behind it. Job is coming to grips with this. He doesn't understand it all. It's painful. It's mysterious. But he knows that God is in charge, and this man's hurting. Uh, verse 10, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. See, here's the truth. The breath of all mankind. All these leaders in rebellion, they can't breathe without the God they hate. They can't breathe without the Creator. Um, won't read all of this. Verse 16, with God, with him are strength and sound wisdom. And then I read this, the misled and the misleader belong to him. To my knowledge, I could not, I, and I went, wow, I've never seen that before in my life. Why was I so upset the night before? Because there were so many lies that were misleading people because some leader was misleading. I mean, I was, that's, that's why I was all worked up. And then I read this, with him or strength and sound wisdom, yes, that's true. Oh, the misled and the misleader belong to him. Is he upset? No, because he owns them. He's in charge, he's in control, he's sovereign. Go Farrar, here you go again, talking about the sovereignty of God. That's because it's on every page of the Bible. It's the only thing that helps me to relax, that God is in absolute control. And he is in absolute control. Do I understand it all? No. But all I need to understand is that he is good and that he is righteous and that he is in control and I also need to understand that his ways are not my ways. Isaiah 55, 8, and his thoughts are not my thoughts. I am not going to understand why God does things the way that he does them. I'll never be, I, we don't have the human capacity to plumb the depths of that. But God is in charge. God is sovereign. God allows sin. There is evil. God is never the author of evil, but he uses evil for the good of his people and the glory of his name. That's really important that those fundamentals are understood. 
Then he gets into leadership. 18, he loosens the bonds of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. In other words, he, he restrains them as he wishes. He makes priests walk barefoot. That means stripped. That means, and if you look back at 17, he makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. I really like that one. I really like that one. <laughs> because you see, they think they're so high and mighty. What helps me is to know that the Supreme Court isn't. One day, every justice on the Supreme Court will make an appearance at the Supreme Court. There's no escaping it. And those who have Teflon and escape their guilt and their history of lying and deceit and murder and you name it. There is a day of reckoning that cannot and will not be avoided. He strips counselors. He makes fools of judges. 20, he deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. Now see, that's Romans 1. When the leaders are contrary to God, as we saw in Romans 1, he'll take away their discernment and their rationality and their abil ability to think clearly. When he gives them over to reprobate minds, basically it's a type of insanity and that's what we see going on all around us. This is insane. Why? Because they're in rebellion to God. Look at 23. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Uh, the BBC came out with... Um, I saw this this week. The BBC put together some long documentary basically asking the question, is the world coming to an end? And they had all these graphs on great civilizations and great history, you know, and Arthur Toynbee and his study. And are we coming to the end? Are we coming to the end? Are we coming to the end? Because they're even asking the question. Great nations die by suicide. That's how we're dying, Oskina says. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away into captivity as he did uh, Israel and Judah. Watch this, watch this. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. That's the majority of the leadership in this country. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light he makes them stagger like a drunken man. That's where we are. Now, there are some Daniels in government. God has them here and there. 
But what we see, generally speaking, this is what we see. It all stems from rebellion to Almighty God, and he has deprived them of intelligence. And they lie. So what are those lies? Well, what we're dealing with right now in regard to the seventh commandment, adultery and marriage, I want to hit these in three different ways. First of all, I want to hit marriage. So here's what I've got on my notes. Um, three lies. I've got marriage, then I've got a hyphen. The truth and the lie about marriage. Then the second lie is about human life, hyphen. I've got the truth and the lie about human life. Thirdly, I've got gender, the truth and the lie about gender. Um, when it comes to marriage, the truth from Scripture is that men and women are equal, but they are different. We have read Genesis 1.18. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. The animals are not made in the image of God. Male and female, man and woman, are made in the image of God. Um, wherever Christianity has gone in the world, the status of women has gone up. Christianity has always said that women are equal. Women and men are both made in the image of God, but they are different. They are different. Are they not? Men can get breast cancer. Because men have breasts. But I don't know if you picked up on this. There is a difference between the breast of men and the breast of women. Are there not? Yes, there are. In God's eyes, they're equal, but they're different. He made them to be different. John Stone Street says, how do we know biologically that someone is a male or female? Objective facts about physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, and DNA exist. Objective facts. Maleness and femaleness are undeniable physical realities. I could have quoted that under gender, but it fits right here. Men and women are equal but different. But the lie, that's the truth of what God says. That's just from observing. I, I, I mean, the, the differences are monumental. But your wife corresponds. Eve, when she was taken from the man, when God formed her, he saw her and he said, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She corresponds to me. She fits me. She compliments me. We're both made of the image of God. We're equals. We're different. So wherever Christianity has gone, the status of women has gone up. Now in the home, God has called the husband to be the leader of the home. As Ephesians 5, the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. There's always, in human relationships between equals, there's always a hierarchy where you work. You might be the executive vice president. 
And, you know, but you got a lot of people you work with and you're all equal under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But in that hierarchy at work, because if you didn't have a hierarchy, nothing would get done. If everybody was just equals, you'd be arguing all day. So if you're an executive vice president, you report to a president. Oh, and the president, he reports to some, because everybody reports to somebody. He reports to the board of directors. You see, there's a hierarchy among equals. That's just how things function. You got a head coach, you got an assistant coach, you got an offensive coordinator, you, you know, it's just everywhere. You're driving over here, a cop pulls up behind you, he's got two options on his car, you didn't get on yours, he's got lights and a siren. <laughs> You're equals, he turns them on, you pull over, why? That's how life works. Okay. The lie about marriage in our culture is that men and women are equal and they are the same. That's the lie of feminism. Men and women are not the same. This is why every time they, well, <laughs> so this week we saw some more insanity. Uh, what we saw this week was a judge in Texas, I'm quoting from World Magazine, ruled Friday that requiring men but not women to register for the military draft is unconstitutional. Uh, U.S. District Judge Gray Miller agreed with the plaintiffs, two draft-age men who filed suit in 2013, that the men-only draft is a form of sex-based discrimination. Miller rejected the court's 1981 ruling that women did not have to register for the draft because they could not serve in combat, saying it no longer applied since the Department of Defense lifted that ban in 2013. So in 2013, they say, oh, no, and for a thousand years, you don't put women in combat. Why? Because... God says that men are to protect their women. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men sacrifice for their wives. They protect their wives. They protect their daughters. That's always been understood up until 2013. And then some hotshots get in there and say, oh, no, no, no. Women should be in combat. Uh-huh, really? And we talked a few weeks ago about Jessica Lynch. And you remember her story? She got in a combat situation and they took her prisoner and she was raped beyond, I mean, she can't even remember how many times. Ruined her entire life. But you see, this is the latest thing. So now we're going to move to all because of equality. Uh, attorney Mark Angelucci of the National Coalition for Men said in a statement that since men face prison fines and denial of federal loans for not re registering, women should face the same repercussions. Well, he's a real man, isn't he? Um, let's see if I... The Family Research Council, Tony Perkins, did a great article on this. He said that, and see, here's the repercussions of people denying the truth about God. It basically destroys people. And you can say, oh, this is, you're just political. This is, this is people's lives here. This is nonsense. 6,500 U.S. girls turn 18 years old every day, and every one of them will be eligible for the military draft if Judge Miller ruling stands. 
Historical restrictions on women serving in combat may have justified past discrimination, he argues, but no longer. Quoting from the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage, he ruled that gender restrictions must substantially serve an important governmental interest today. You see, government's God, not God. A men-only draft is unconstitutional under the mandate that no person may be denied, denied the equal, equal protection of the law. That is insane. So we're going to put young women in harm's way so they'll have equal protection under the law. That is, that is insane. And he goes on and talks about this is all about gender equality. Uh, and the judge said, you know, combat roles today, everything's changed, it's all right. Uh, Perkins says, that's not what military studies have found. Marine teams with female members performed at lower overall levels. The core year long, the core's year long study found and completed tasks more slowly and fired weapons with less accuracy than their all-male counterparts. In addition, female Marines sustained significantly higher injury rates and demonstrated lower levels of physical performance capacity overall. What a shock. Because God made them different. You can be the same height as your wife, same weight. You have 40% more muscle mass. That's how God created the difference between men and women. That's why God said in 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, first member of Delta Force, former commander of Delta Force, now works with Family Research. He says this, no one is suggesting that women are not capable and not serve their country with distinction. Women, World, World War I, World War II, they, they've taken different positions, not combat. He says they are and they have. But we don't do women any favors by pretending they're the same as men. Do you have little girls? Do you have little granddaughters? This is utter insanity. It's because they've, and it all comes from suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So we need to expose the lie, and we need to fight against the lie. Secondly, there's human life. There is the truth and the lie. Here is the truth. An unborn child is a child. You read Psalm 139. David talks about God forming him and fashioning him in the womb. He says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And now, of course, today we have... Uh, these high-definition ultrasounds, my gosh, you can see in there. That's a little kid. That's a little kid. I saw an interesting thing earlier this week that a lot of young millennials are starting to turn pro-life because they've seen the ultrasounds. And it's undeniable evidence unless you're a reprobate and are not interested in truth. So what we have, here's the lie in our culture about human life. 
an unborn child is a fetus, a mass of cells. Well, see, that's been disproven because we got all the pictures on PBS. And just this, what, last week? Now, New York admits that it's a baby. They don't say it's a mass of cells anymore. No, it's a baby. And even if it's born, they'll just go ahead and kill it. And then, I watched the video. And when that was signed, what did they do? They cheered and they applauded. That's right out of Romans 1. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. And one day, they'll be at the great white throne judgment before Jesus. Third lie is on gender. The truth and the lie. Here's the truth. Gender is determined by God in the womb. I mean, the, the, is this basic stuff or what? Water is wet. Water is wet. You might want to write that down. But I'm telling you, someone's going to pass a bill that water is dry. And we're all supposed to sign on to it and give approval and applaud it. Professing to, became, professing to be wise, they became as fools. The lie is that gender is a choice that one makes based on one's feelings. This is where we are. So what do we do? How do we live our lives with this stuff going on? How do we live in evil times when all of this is falling apart? Uh, I think the first thing we do is we say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You've got to decide, as Bob Dylan, the great theologian, used to say, you've got to serve somebody. And everybody serves somebody, and you've got to decide who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The whole world can go the wrong way, but I'm following the Lord. That's, what, that's how it's going to be in this household. You see? You, you can put me in jail. You can put me in solitary confinement. You, you, can, you can kill me. You can do whatever you want to do. But I'm not changing. I'm not doing it. You kill me, you're doing me a favor. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Thank you very much. You see, that's the fact of the matter. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear them. You don't have to be afraid of them. But fear the one who determines where you spend eternity. See, that's sane living. Flip over to Jeremiah 29. In, in Jeremiah 29, you have a situation where, and I'm out of time, so I'll do this very quickly. Jeremiah is a book for our times because Jeremiah is a time when 
The worst that could happen, happened. What happened was that the nation of Judah, for centuries, refused to listen to the voice of the Lord. They refused to listen to the prophets. And God said through the prophets, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to bring judgment. You're going to go into captivity. And eventually, they went into captivity for 70 years. And so in the book of Jeremiah, they're they're in captivity This would have been when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in captivity in in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, and this is a verse that we often see on bumper stickers or in Christian bookstores or, you know, different Christian events. And it's usually done in calligraphy with flowers around it. And it's, you know, very cheery and hallmarkish and all that kind of thing. If you know what I'm talking about. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. But see, usually we just take that verse and we have no concept of what the context is. The worst had happened. They had lost their nation. They had lost their land. They had lost their inheritance. They had lost their their favor. And they were in captivity and they were going to be there for 70 years. In fact, in the previous chapter, there's a false prophet who says uh, that, listen, we're not going to be in here uh, for 70 years. Jeremiah is a false prophet. And Jeremiah says, listen now, Hananiah, uh, you're going to die this year because you've counseled rebellion against the Lord. And Hananiah died because he was a false prophet. They were going to be there 70 years. And they were there 70 years. Did they want to be there? No. But it's to these people that God said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare. And not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And the worst just happened. That's because God is sovereign over all things. Go up to verse 4. What do we do when we're living in a culture? And, and you know, guys, it's possible the Lord could send a revival. It's possible the Lord could send a, re- a reformation. And turn this thing around. That is entirely possible. Revival comes when you least expect it. When God reforms a nation. And he's done that in history. So that's one option that God might do. But if that doesn't happen, it's going to get worse and worse. And there's going to be judgment on the land. And we're going to have to live through it. Now look at the instructions that God gave to people to whom that happened. Verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. This says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent, who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Watch what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the father of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. So what am I supposed to do if the worst happens? You just keep living life. You don't head for the hills. You don't build a shelter in Nevada somewhere. It's what one writer has called, he says, we are to be a faithful presence. A faithful presence to God in the midst of judgment. If, if indeed that comes, if it gets worse and worse, we're to be a faithful presence. What are we supposed to do? 
supposed to build houses and live in them. We keep doing life as normally as we possibly can do. We don't live short term, we live long term. We continue to teach the scriptures as best we can, as they're doing in China. And if they come in and they tell you you can't, and as these godly people are doing, no, we will stand for the Lord. We will not. When the government tells you you can't serve God and you must violate God's laws, you stand against them and you take the consequences. We'll see what happens here. But if it happens, we're not supposed to fear, we're not supposed to panic. We're supposed to just keep living our lives. We build houses. We plant gardens. That's how you feed your family. You do what you do to feed your family. We just keep living life. You have marriages. It's what they did in Egypt under Pharaoh. We just keep living our lives. We've had a free ride for 200 years. It may get a lot worse. It may get a lot, a lot more difficult. But you know what? The Lord will sustain us. The eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him. We don't have to fear we don't have to be afraid of the future. Because I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So we don't freeze up, we don't panic, we just realize what's going on, and you determine in your heart what you're going to do before it comes. My life is in his hands. My times are in his hands. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You can't die until your work is done. We can be a faithful presence, and we might turn out to be a faithful presence in persecution, but we wouldn't be the first. And God would provide, and God would make a way, and God would still work. You say, man, I sure hope revival comes. <laughs> you know where revival tends to come? Where there's persecution. That's where revival tends to come. Because God works strangely. But he works. So be of good cheer. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You guys okay? Good. Let's pray. So Father, we're not fearful, we're not panicky, we're just realistic. And we're so thankful that in your grace and mercy, you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We used to be Romans 1 people, but by your grace and mercy, you pulled us out and brought us to Christ. And there are others that you have chosen and appointed to eternal life that have not come yet, but they will come. So in the interim, we pray for those that you will bring to you we pray for ourselves that you'll give us wisdom and that you'll give us steadiness and that you'll give us peace and that you'll give us joy and contentment and that you'll give us hope that you're in charge and that you're at work and that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.